continuing our story in Daniel chapter 5. Just as a, a word of encouragement, there was a conference day yesterday, a missions conference day, and I was chatting to a guy uh, who is teaching through Daniel in this missions uh, organization. And I, he said, You're, how many hours do you do? And I said, well, I don't really do it by hours. I know that we're in 25 weeks. I don't know, maybe half an hour to 40 minutes each week. So we're maybe 12, 13 hours in Daniel. And he said, well, we do 26 hours in Daniel. Um, so they do twice the depth that we're going to. So if you're struggling on week 11, just praise your God you're not in the missions college, okay? So you get me instead. But last week, we were abruptly introduced to Belshazzar, who seemed to come from absolutely nowhere. End of chapter 4, we have Nebuchadnezzar. Start of chapter 5, we have Belshazzar. We learnt in between, there was uh, several years of kings that were murderous. They killed, uh, one king killed the next, who killed the next, who killed the next. Nebuchadnezzar dies, and this whole kingdom begins to fall apart. And then we have Belshazzar, who isn't actually king. He's regent. He's been placed there by his father because his father's unpopular. And so he, we arrive to him as king or as regent in Daniel chapter 5. Uh, what's interesting, as we looked at last week in the first 12 verses, uh, the only element that was worth mentioning about Belshazzar was his egocentric drunken party in verse 1. We don't read about any victories, we don't read about any wars, we don't read about his army, we don't read about statues, we read about his egocentric uh, drunken party. Uh, he is the focus of this party, he's gathered a thousand nobles around him, he begins to behave in a fairly depraved manner, he begins to get holy items from uh, the, the temple of Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar plundered and he begins to drink from them and all his um, nobles drink from them and they degrade the holy items of God. They begin to worship these items, worship created things rather than the creator himself. And God, as abruptly as we were introduced to Belshazzar, abruptly interrupts this party because a human hand comes out of nowhere and begins to write on the wall. Um, I did try, and uh, no word of a lie, I did try to see if I could do this via video and I could make my hand come up on the screen. Um, it's impossible, okay? Maybe someone who's tech savvy can do it. But this hand just appears out of nowhere and writes a message on the wall. Belshazzar has no idea what the message says, and no idea how to read it, and he is terrified. Uh, we actually read that he began to have his knees knocking. And as I pointed out last week, I doubt it was his knees knocking. It is likely that his faculties were beginning to lose uh, out on him here. But the king terrified, and then we get the wise words of the queen, who comes in and says, get a grip, Belshazzar. God is telling you something. Go and find Daniel and hear what Daniel has to say about that. Uh, what I want us to do this morning as we go from verse 13 is notice that God knows us, he knows our hearts, and he knows our motives. And I'm going to uh, tie in Psalm 139. And let me just read this to you. This is what Psalm 139 verse 1 says. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. 
And that's where we're going to be this morning, is we're going to learn how God knows our hearts, our motives, our words, our thoughts. And so with that firm in our minds, we'll go to Daniel 5 and verse 13. Just one verse for this moment. Uh, Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? Uh, Just for a moment, flick your eyes back to verse 11. And you'll see that the queen refers to Daniel as chief or top or the highest honor of the wise men placed by the king Nebuchadnezzar. Yet in verse 13, Belshazzar refers to Daniel as an exile from Judah. Faced with humiliation of this uh, written message on the wall and fear because he doesn't understand it, Belshazzar aims to put all of that onto somebody else. And he decides, do you know what? I'm going to degrade Daniel. He is nothing more than an exile. He is a slave. Belshazzar, fearing that he is going to lose out here, goes on the attack and he taunts uh, Daniel. Also notice he uses uh, the phrase, my father the king brought from Judah. Now that just seems like a statement of fact. But in that is actually a taunt of age. Daniel's in his 70s, 80s here. Belshazzar's a young chap and he's taunting him. You're just a slave who's old, who's just been hanging about Babylon. Remember who you are, you exile. And so he goes on the attack uh, for Daniel. Uh, Let's go into verse 14. Uh, I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Uh, you see this cynical view of the king in the tone of his voice. Let me just try and uh, take the tone out for you. Verse 14, I have heard, and then again in verse 16, now I've heard, and then again in verse 16, if you can, the history books are clear. Daniel could, Daniel did. Nebuchadnezzar and all of the kings that came after him would have known about Daniel's ability to interpret, Daniel's ability to stand for God, and Nebuchadnezzar's weakness against God. Belshazzar would not have been ignorant about this. He would have known. This is not uh, uh, very historical. This is recent history. This is just a couple of decades I mean, how many of us can put our hand up and remember details about the First War, the Second World War? How many of us can remember details of the Cold War? We can remember details because it's still relatively recent history. Belshazzar knew the details, but look how he does it. If you can, I've heard a story. I've heard a fable about you. He taunts him even more. He shows that cynical, doubting side that the king says, Daniel can't do any of this. Yet even in his mockery of Daniel, he still offers wealth and position and prestige that he had offered to the failed wise men before Daniel. Uh, You could take this both ways, that either he was further mocking Daniel Come in, slave, see what you can do, and I'll give you all the riches in the world if you can manage it. 
I think is less a taunt and more what we saw with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was desperate for answers. I think Belshazzar, below the surface, is desperate for answers and he's willing to give his fortune and position to get those answers. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Daniel's pretty curt here in his response, comparison to his dialogue with Nebuchadnezzar. He comes to Nebuchadnezzar, he declares him king, he honors him as king, he has conversations with him, where Daniel here just goes, do you know what, you want to mock me? Tough, I'm going to give you the answer because God has given me the answer to tell you. He doesn't just intend to read the message, but he's going to tell the king exactly what it means. To Daniel, the most important thing in this moment is not wealth, is not prestige, is the ability to remain faithful to God. The interpretation could not be bought by wealth, it could not be bought by position. And we see something very similar in Acts 8. Just read out these verses. Listen to these. Acts 8 uh, from verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, and this is the key thing, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. And see, this is what Belshazzar is doing. He's taunting Daniel, but offering him wealth to get an answer. And what Daniel's saying is, keep it, let it burn, because I cannot be bought. Daniel responds to situations differently. He responds to this whole situation, not with the focus of accolades and wealth, but with the focus on being faithful to God. We see this again in the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians 2. Let me read this out to you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. The New Testament leaders served God. They were allowed the authority to get praise and honor, but they refused it because they had no interest in pleasing man and only interested in pleasing God. Verse 18, follow along. At your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. Daniel gets in a bit of a role here. I think he would have been a pretty great preacher. He goes from being really curt and putting Belshazzar back in his place to immediately going into a history lesson. And here's his history lesson. Nebuchadnezzar had authority and it was given by the Most High God. It wasn't won in battle. It wasn't a big kingdom win for him. It was given and established by God. It was an all-encompassing authority that brought the whole of Babylon to fear the king. The king could do what he liked. He could kill. He could praise. He could promote. He could downcast. He could do whatever he likes. 
And it's very similar to John 19 verse 11 where Jesus says this, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And that is Jesus responding to Pilate. You have no authority unless it's given to you by God above. However, we know from chapters one to four that history doesn't remain positive. Nebuchadnezzar just doesn't remain with all of this authority and all of this greatness. Uh, Just look at verse 20 of chapter five. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne, stripped of his glory. He was driven away from his people, given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys, ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Nebuchadnezzar, and what we have learned over the last 10 weeks had an issue with an inflated eagle, very similar to Belshazzar. He was arrogant and full of pride, but at just the right moment, God stepped in, humbled him. We've been through this together, haven't we? Humbled him down until he declared who the Most High God was, until he said, you are the one with the authority, God, to do what you will with kings. Verse 22. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Notice Daniel saying he knows all of it. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, of iron and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Have you noticed the word you came up? The word you comes up 14 times in these two verses. 14 times Daniel points the finger. You didn't behave this. You didn't honour God. You drank from the goblets. You blasphemed against God. You knew all that God was doing here. And he was just hammering Belshazzar. Why? Because he was wakening his arrogance from him. It is time to know, Belshazzar, who you are. You are worse than the King Nebuchadnezzar because you knew all of this happened before and you have still not learnt your lesson. Verse 24, and this is the bit we've been all been waiting for. Here comes the hand again. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Many, many tekel parson. Slightly confusing, isn't it? Verse 26. Here's what these words mean. Many. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. 27. Tekel. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Verse 28. Perez. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Here Daniel reads and interprets the message that Many, meaning number or to count. Tekel, meaning to weigh or to assess. Peres, meaning to part or divide. And before I get to what this actually means, here's two just really interesting things. At one, many is used as a coin. The coin is mina. Tekel is used as another coin, shekel. Peres is used as another coin, half shekel. And the order that's given here, many tekel peres, is a decreasing order from wealth to poverty in coin sum. Interesting, isn't it? 
second interesting thing, the sequence in English goes like this. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. God has numbered the days of Belshazzar. He's not going to have many left. He has numbered his unfaithfulness. He has weighed how he has responded as a king and he is found wanting. Uh, put this in a, in a different way. Um, I bake to relax. Okay, sounds a bit weird, I know, because I'm a guy's guy. Uh, but I bake to de-stress. I don't bake with my wife because we bake in two very different ways. Uh, Miriam's very much a chuck it in and see how it goes. Make it fluffy. What does that mean? What does fluffy mean? Oh, she's a bit yellow. What is a bit yellow? Give me a grading system here. Uh, well, when it's all kind of light and fluffy and stays in the bowl, how do I know it's going to stay in the bowl when I lift it up? So that's Miriam's way of baking. Uh, my way of baking is to go to the recipe and exactly put in everything in exactly how it says. My view is if the recipe fails, I can blame Mary Berry and not myself. Okay? <laughs> So if you come to our house and the cake's looking a bit dodgy, Mary Berry needs to work on her recipes, okay? That's how I view it. Now, we get into a bit of a fight in our households because we'll go for 80 grams. I don't know. I don't know any recipes. Who knows? 80 grams of bicarbonate sounds really wrong, doesn't it? Uh, yes, yes, yes. It's just put, making sure you don't come to my house for dinner. Um, but you put it in. Now, if it was 81, out comes the teaspoon and I'll take a bit out. And then it'll go to 79, a bit in, 81, a bit out. And I'll be there for ages until it's exact. And this is at the point where Miriam decides to leave the house. Okay, This is where all descends. But for me, that is what's happening here. Because what we know is if we get the recipe right, we should be able to trust Mary Berry and get a nice cake at the end of it. But in Belshazzar, he has been weighed and there's emptiness. Something's missing. There's no bicarb. There's no self-raising flour. It's just a dead cake. He has been weighed. And then God said, because I have found you wanting, I'm going to divide your kingdom up. I'm going to take it from you because you are no longer worthy of being a king. You are going to lose it. It's a strenuous link to take that to a cake, I know. But just imagine a two-tier cake and you give it to your guests with one tier missing. There is something missing in Belshazzar and that is honouring God. And God's decided to take the cake away. He's decided to take the kingdom away. He is not going to let him reign. Now, do you remember last week I said... Verse 1, the great drunken party of Belshazzar. And I mentioned next week we will come to the fact, if someone could just open the door, please, I think we'll have someone come to the door. Thanks, Jim. Do you remember me mentioning that we'll come to the fact that his enemies are actually behind the walls, ready to pounce? Well, here, let's go to verse 29. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple and a gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night okay notice those words big drunken party big message on the wall daniel's called interpretations given that very night belshazzar king of the babylonians was slain 
and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Do you notice that? He is having an egocentric party. Great King Belshazzar, let us degrade God. Let me show you how powerful I am. And God says, numbered are your days. Numbered are your uh, days that you have worshipped me and lack of worship me. I have weighed you and you have been found wanting. I will divide your kingdom and it will happen now. God was no longer being patient with Belshazzar. And the kingdom was gone. Interestingly, again, something we should note is this is not fable. You look at the history books and this is exactly what the history books say. That Belshazzar was slain after an event and Darius the Mede took the kingdom. This is not a fable. This is historical. I want you to just for a second flick back to Daniel chapter 2 with me just a few pages back. I want you to go to verse 31. Your majesty looked and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest, the statue of uh, the chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Have you noticed and remember the decreasing value of gold to clay? The same decreasing value we see with Belshazzar. And do you know what's happened in just two short decades? Where are we in the statue? We're no longer at the gold head. Nebuchadnezzar's gone. How many kingdoms have gone and passed? We're down by the feet. We're down by the clay. We're down by a kingdom of Babylon that is losing out. God is honoring his promise to Babylon. You will be destroyed for your dishonoring of my name. Now what I want to do, and I always do this, is I bring a bit of application uh, to uh, this story. And we've been through Daniel 5. We'll be going to Daniel 6 tomorrow. Uh, not tomorrow, if you want to turn up to church. A day off, so you can just come if you want. Uh, but next week we'll do Daniel 6 and the lion's den. Okay, I know you've all been waiting for that. Uh, and the lion's den. Uh, but right now at Daniel 5, we're at a key moment. And I want to read out Psalm 90 verse 12. And this is our key moment. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Uh, I was at a, a, a missions Bible college yesterday and there was a couple hundred young people that were there at a conference to uh, learn about missions and learn about going to unreached tribes around the world to share the gospel. A fascinating day of what it means uh, to translate God's word. 1,800 language groups who don't have God's word in their language and not enough missionaries to translate them. But one of the things that, that Miriam and I spotted was when every one of these missionaries talked, 
they seemed weird to Miriam and I. Because all they could talk about was the gospel to those who don't know it and they cared about nothing else. Now that seems weird that I say that. I'm in ministry. I serve in a church. But these folks were just on another level. They were just on another plane. So focused was their desire to serve. One chap I met was in his late 70s. He had spent 16 years translating the New Testament of the Bible so this particular tribe in Papua New Guinea could have God's word. 16 years he weighed through the jungle to just figure out how to translate the New Testament. And I asked him the question, what should I do as a pastor to equip people to serve him more? What book, what, what letter, what, what, what passage should I be teaching? And this was his words. God saved me from the brink of hell. Why do you need a pastor to equip them? And what he was saying is, if you're a Christian this morning, you don't need me to encourage you to go to the mission field or to serve God. You need to go to God's word and realize what God has done for you. Because he numbered your days. He weighed you and found you wanting. But instead of destroying you, he sent Jesus. He saved you from Belshazzar's outcome. And this old chap in his late 70s, missionary for 50 plus years, just said, why wouldn't I serve that great king who saved me from the brink of hell? The next passage I want to go to is Romans 9 verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Why have I gone here? Why have I gone to Moses and Pharaoh? Because we need to remind ourselves that it is not about works. It's not about how good you are as a person. It is about the Savior, Jesus Christ. And that when he saves you, when he takes you from the pit of hell, when he numbers your days, and instead of destroying you, sends his son to save you from that, it is to his glory that we praise him for that. Uh, recently, I've had many a conversation from people, and I, and I asked the very simple question is, uh, are you a Christian? Well, I go to church. No, are you a Christian? Well, I, I've, you know, I've been dedicated. No, are you a Christian? Well, you know, I believe in God. You've still not answered the question, are you a Christian? We have got soft in our society that we have not challenged people to really ask the question, do you know Jesus who is numbered, numbered, weighed, and then saved you? Anything else is Belshazzar. You have heard me say it week after week after week. And so how do we apply this to us as a church this morning? Well, I want to take the, the lesson of Belshazzar to us as a whole church in one go. God has numbered our days here. He knows how long this church will be here. He knows how long I'll be here. I pray for a long time because Miriam never wants to move again. 
Just checking you're all awake. Good. But God has numbered everything. I wonder if God weighed us right now what he would feel about the weighing scales. Do we give glory to Jesus? Do we honour God with every aspect of our ministry? Or do we moan or grumble? We trust him, exactly. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we always trust him? I can tell you one thing. At 8 o'clock in the morning when I walk down this corridor and the lights don't come on by the time I'm at the door and I'm trying to find my key in the door and the key doesn't go in and I can hear everything kicking off outside, I'll put my hand up and say, I'm not in that moment loving Jesus. I'm thinking about other jobs I can do. And it's in that moment that we need to remember who Jesus is and what he has called us to do. And so I want to really challenge us this week to think about what being weighed by God means in each one of our ministries, in each one of our contexts. Are you being found wanted? Is God weighing you and thinking, this doesn't match with one who would give me glory? Because I, for one, don't want his kingdom divided. I want his kingdom united under his word, under his glory, under his honor. Now, we would be amiss not to finish the sermon with a a Mother's Day element. Uh, One of the things that we talk about a lot in our household is uh, just the different roles that Miriam and I take and and different things we do. And recently, just on a drive, we we started talking about how uh, I can get into a bit of a daze and I can do other things while chaos is happening in the house. Uh, Kids are falling off trampolines. Balls are being thrown into a house. Dogs are being chased into neighbors' gardens. And I'm just oblivious to the whole thing because I'm working. And we talked about it as in our own marriage. And I don't normally share uh, this sort of things. And we talked about it. And we realized that I was found wanting. Because I wasn't spending time with the kids. And so when I did spend time with the kids, I saw the chaos and ran away. (laughs) Any sensible person would. But this is what many, many tekel perez means in each one of our lives. To look at it and see what God has placed you in. And in our household, the weight was very very much on Miriam. And I was found wanting. I wonder if you're found wanting. Is it time to support your wife? Support your mother? To remind them of who they are in Christ. Not just for a day. Not just for a a bouquet of flowers. But in a Titus 2 responsibility of getting a grip, as the Queen said to Belshazzar. And honouring Jesus in every relationship we have. Next week, Daniel 6 and the lion's den. And a beautiful show of God's glory. Let's pray.